You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Chike Jeffers. Chike is an associate professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. He has cross appointments in Canadian studies and international development studies. He does research in philosophy of race, Africana philosophy, and ethics. He is also the editor of Listen to Ourselves, a multilingual anthology of African philosophy. This is part one of a two-part interview on Black thought. In this episode, we talk African philosophy, Ethiopian political philosophy, the bias in the Western philosophical canon, Black life and Black solidarity in Canada, and why do we need Black Canadian philosophy? Hello, Chike, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. How did you get interested in philosophy? Well, looking back, I think I probably was interested in philosophy from very early on in life, not knowing it under that name. You know, I think that on Sundays, listening to a pastor, I was thinking about the the, the philosophical aspects of what I was hearing. I think about the fact that related to the time of the year that we are in, um, I grew up celebrating Kwanzaa and, and, and still do. And uh, I was telling someone the other day that Kwanzaa is a very philosophical holiday, right? It's built around, you know, uh, socio-political principles that you are supposed to discuss, you know, with your, with your family. So, so I think that I was interested in philosophy from since I was a child. I didn't start majoring in philosophy as soon as I got to university. I actually started as a film student, and I uh, I made a switch about halfway through. I realized that I wasn't interested in going into the, the film industry, and so I switched from the film production stream in the film program at, at the institution I was at to the film studies stream, because I, I realized I was more attracted to the academic side of things. And I'd say that, uh, you know, what I gradually realized is that, you know, what I liked about film studies was, again, like, you know, the philosophical aspects. And so I had taken on philosophy as a minor. And in that third year of my undergrad, I realized that it, it was basically what I wanted to do with the rest of life. So I have to give a shout out to George Yancey because... Uh, one of the things that made me realize it's what I wanted to do with my life is his book, African American Philosophers, 17 Conversations. Hmm. Uh, it happened to be in the bookstore at my university. I purchased it, you know, read it voraciously, you know, and I had already started to feel like philosophy was something I was deeply interested in, that I, you know, that I found it very fun. But one thing that I wasn't clear on before I read that book was whether philosophy was a way that, you know, someone who is black and cares about his community and wants to, you know, advance his community's aims or her community's aims, whether, you know, whether philosophy is a vehicle for that. And so the role modeling that I got from that book is definitely one of the things that helps to uh, push me into philosophy. So 
So that leads us to, to my second question. George Yancey does work in Africana philosophy. You do work in Africana philosophy. Tell us, what is Africana philosophy? And is it all about race? Is it all about black men? What exactly is it? So I would say that Africana philosophy is philosophy um, as it arises within the black world. So here we're thinking Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, um, and in diaspora. Even as I say, uh, sub-Saharan, you know, I, I, I shouldn't even limit it that way because one of the things that I have worked on, uh, and I know that you were uh, thinking to ask me about this as well, is that, is, is ancient Egyptian thought. So, so in a way, I think that, um, Africana philosophy is is maybe among the oldest philosophical traditions, and not under that name. Well, the term Africana philosophy only really comes into common usage in the 1990s, right? Um, Lucius Outlaw is a major figure promoting the use of that term. Um, Lewis Gordon took it up and, and started promoting the use of that term as well. But so, yeah, I, I take it to be that which is, uh, that is philosophy that emerges from the black world uh, and, and, and which is distinctive, distinctively related to it. So as, as far as the question of whether it's all about race, I would say that a lot of Africana philosophy, especially that which emerges from the diaspora, is centrally about race, but no, I don't think it is all about race. And so the fact that I, for example, would include ancient Egyptian thought, right, which uh, some would argue can't be about race, uh, given the fact that many believe that race is, you know, is, is, a, is something of the modern world rather than something uh, of the ancient world. Um, given that I count that as Africana philosophy, I don't think it's, it's all about race. When I say that it's distinctively related to Africa and the African diaspora, what I mean there is that I could choose to contribute to contemporary debates in, say, epistemology or philosophy of mind as they tend to go on in the Western world. And if I'm doing that, I don't think the, the, the mere fact that I am of African descent makes it Africana philosophy. I think it makes more sense or is certainly more informative to say that, yeah, it's, it's Western philosophy. Right, so it seems to me that Africana philosophy is philosophy produced by people of African descent that is somehow distinctively related to their experiences, cultures, situations, etc. Right, and so in the modern world, that does mean that race becomes a very central topic. Right, but if you say have a situation where people of African descent you know, are working on a topic even today, right? And and it's not a topic that is specifically about race, but for, for for whatever reason, right, maybe they all went to this particular, you know, grad school in um in Africa, right? And so there's a kind of like, you know, trend in, let's say, philosophy of mind or uh, or epistemology, right? But that's kind of distinctively coming out of the African world somehow. At that point, I'm willing to call it Africana philosophy. So that's, that's the way I think about it. It's, it's, it's philosophy produced by people of African descent that is distinctively related to their world. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk about Africa for a little bit. You edited a volume entitled Listening to Ourselves. Can you explain that work to us and why did you decide to put the collection together? Great question. I, 
I worked on that for a very long time because uh, I first had the idea for it back in 2005, and and it's uh, it's just a couple of years ago in 2013 that it finally came out. So it was, it's something that I worked on actually uh, throughout my time in grad school, and the uh, the the subtitle to listening to ourselves is a uh, is a multilingual anthology of African philosophy. And so what it is is it's a collection of, of essays, new essays by African philosophers written in indigenous African languages. Hmm. And so the book is then in a dual language format where there are uh, English translations of the essays on the Facebook pages of the book. I was responding to uh, debates, themes uh, that have been talked about a lot in African philosophy and, and then within African thought more generally. So Ngugiwa Thiongo, for example, uh, is a Kenyan writer who's very famous for having promoted the use of indigenous African languages for, for writing. He has especially used his own language, Kikuyu, for his creative writing. But so philosophers, African philosophers have, have been talking about that, you know, whether, whether, uh, African philosophy to be truly African, right, uh, needed to incorporate, right, more usage of indigenous African languages. And without trying to suggest that, for example, everyone needs to switch, every you know, every African philosopher needs to switch to writing in their own mother tongues, which there's, there's a lot of logistical issues, at least, uh, that would make that tough, to say nothing of, uh, of, uh, of other reasons not to go that way. It did seem to me that it was important to push to, 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 to get that started as one among the things, right, that, that it was normal for African philosophers to do. And so there's a variety of topics addressed in the book, truth, time, uh, gender, mor- morality, proverbs and their relationships, language, naming, practices, the relationship between language and thought. So I'm pretty proud of it. I think it's, if you, if you happen to come across it in a bookstore, you know, even just flipping through it, I think kind of an interesting visual experience seeing, you know, these African languages being used for philosophy by professional philosophers. So let's talk about some specific African philosophical work. Tell me about the tale of the peasant and why do you think it's important to political philosophy? Yes, the the tale of the, the tale of the eloquent peasant is ancient Egyptian work. That title would would be given to it by modern scholars. So that title wouldn't have borne that necessarily, you know, by the author. And it's an interesting story to begin with, right? It's a story involving a peasant who is going to the capital to do some trading, and he ends up being robbed by a very greedy nobleman of all his belongings. So the peasant goes to a steward of the king to complain. When the steward reports the speech of the peasant to the king, the king says to the steward, well, don't give him an answer. Keep him talking. Right, uh, you know, surreptitiously send food to his family so his, his family doesn't starve and, and make sure he doesn't starve. Uh, but, but, um, but they keep him talking basically because he was so eloquent, right? And so he makes a total of nine speeches over the course of the work. And then, you know, he's, he's ready to give up at the end, uh, and p- potentially commit suicide. And then it's revealed that actually 
you know, we were writing down your speeches all the time, and then the uh, the steward has them read to the king. The king is pleased and tells the steward to go ahead and uh, make a judgment, and all of the greedy nobleman's belongings are actually, you know, awarded to the peasant. So that's kind of the structure of the story. And it's, it's, it's interesting, first of all, in terms of the structure of the story, because there's this weird way in which you empathize with the peasant's frustration as he is continuously seeking justice but not getting it but there's the irony that you know that it is his very eloquence in pleading for justice that is the reason why this is a prolonged experience why he is not simply being given justice so, so, so there's an interesting structure and then the thing is the bulk of the of the work are the nine petitions or speeches of the peasants, right? And so I think of it as a really important work of political philosophy because through the, what the what the peasant says in the petitions, we are given a certain picture of the role and function and value of political authority. Hmm. That's the the basic reason, you know, why I I think it's a, a fascinating work. You know, I'm happy to have published on it and, and that piece has has gotten an, a nice amount of attention, and I think that that's pretty important because of the fact that ancient Egyptian thought has been generally ignored by philosophers. And so I think that it's time for that to change, and uh, I was glad to use this really, really fascinating work uh, to help change that. You know, this, this is making me think, prior to even having this discussion with you, I've been thinking a lot about just the Western canon and yeah. kind of what we include in it, what we exclude. And I, I wonder if, and I think the Western world, we are in some ways, Western philosophy is obsessed with, with rigor mm. and among other things. And, and I wonder if we have neglected a lot of work, not only from the African world, but also the Eastern world because of this perception that it's not rigorous. I just wonder, what, what do you think are additional reasons or why do you think certain kinds of work from other parts of the world have not been included in, in Western philosophy? Yeah, well, I think that... Well, historically, it does have to do with, with white supremacy, that is, you know, with, with a belief in the superiority of Europe, uh, such that whatever can be learned about, you know, other parts of the world, that wouldn't mean that they, that they rise to the level of kind of the, you know, the philosophical superiority of, of Europe. I think that that's an important part of the story of how it came to be that in the Western world, there, there are so many who learn so little. Right, about uh, philosophy that comes from elsewhere. Right, despite the, the Western world, I mean, you know, in terms of people who speak English, also French, uh, German, a couple other languages, these languages have some of the most access, right, to texts in other languages as compared to most languages in the world, right? Very few languages have as much translated into them, right? As, as, as say English does, yeah. right? So there's a, there's, there's massive access, right? And so, so I think that, 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 that racism has to be part of that story as to why, you know, so many learn so little. In terms of the idea of rigor, right? I think that it's important how bias ends up shaping notions of rigor. 
right? Such that, such that people will take the time to read, say, you know, the pre-Socratic, but not read works from ancient Indian and ancient Chinese philosophy. And, you know, what, you know, you may be attracted to uh, Plato's dialogues as a model of philosophy. You may be attracted to, say, you know, the more dry treaties of Aristotle as a, as, as a certain model of ancient philosophy. But, um, but especially by the time that you're, that you're looking beyond those two, there's a lot that's considered philosophy even in the ancient world that is not written in that style, right? And so there's this diversity of style in ancient Western philosophy, even between Plato and Aristotle. That's a diversity of style, right? So there's, there's not really a good reason, right, why, why, some, why someone wouldn't be able to engage with other stuff. And in both ancient stuff and, of course, also in, you know, subsequent periods of Western philosophy, right, you, you of course, also have the, ent- the entwining of philosophy and religion, right? And yet sometimes people mistake texts from other traditions as, as you know, as just purely religious, right, without seeing them as, as philosophical in the same ways that they, you know, it's, so the the way that someone might you know read an Aquinas or or, or some other philosopher from the Western tradition, but not engage with say Buddhist philosophy, right? You know, all of these are yeah. The, I think that it's it's really biased more so than actually a matter of the the texts not measuring up. Yeah, yeah. Chike, when I first met you, I wouldn't have known that you were Canadian. I mean, I must admit, you're probably the only black Canadian that I know. Oh, wow. <laughs> so being that you're the only black Canadian that I know, I have to ask this question. What in your experiences is the difference between or difference and similarities of black life in the States and black life in Canada? Because you did receive a PhD from Northwestern. So you spent some time in, in Chicago. You're from Canada. What, what, are, what are the similarities and what are the differences? Yeah, that's a good question. And I may be the only one you know personally, but we're, we're, we're pretty big these days. I mean, like Drake and The Weeknd, uh, for example, you know, uh, had some of the, the top hits of this year. And they're, they're both from my city of uh, Toronto. Um, yeah, good question. Um, one thing that I would say about well, say moving from Toronto to Chicago, for example, one major difference is that the black community in Toronto is by a very, very large majority of recent immigrant background. So lots and lots of folks from uh, the Caribbean. So my parents, for example, would, would, would be from the Caribbean. If you were to kind of break people down by groups, the most, comp, the, 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 mo- the, the most numerous would be, would be Jamaican. And then also lots and lots of people from Africa. And, and that even during my lifetime went up quite a bit. So there's, you know, there's tons of Somalis. In any case, right? It, you know, it's, it's this recent immigrant background experience, right? Even for those like myself who are born there, parents come from, from, from somewhere else. Although as I think now, of those who would be, I guess, teenagers now, it would be probably a lot more common now than when I was growing up to actually have your parents be born in Canada, right? It was pretty weird when I was growing up if you if your parents were born in Canada. And so obviously that makes a significant difference, right? Okay. But but thinking now not just about Toronto but about the country as a whole, right? There's a there's a, a diversity to the country. Which is, uh, which is very large geographically, right? So it's, it's not super large population wise as compared to the US. I mean, on the world stage, it's a, it's a pretty normal sized, you know, mid-sized to, 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 to large country, I guess. But the US is the third largest country in the world. And, you know, California 
the state has more people than the entire country of Canada. Okay. So there's a diff- there's a big difference in population size, and it's really spread out. You and I were talking about how there's more time zones in Canada yeah. than there are in, in the United States. I am in Atlantic Standard Time, which is uh, which is an hour later than New York's time. And so there's also a lot to be said about the diversity of the Black experience within the country. So Montreal, as compared to Toronto, right? If you were to break it down, instead of Jamaican, the single largest group would be uh, Haitian, right? <laughs> because of because of the fact that Montreal is in Quebec, the uh, the French speaking province, yeah. right? And I live in Halifax, which is in Nova Scotia, and, and Nova Scotia is distinct for having a significant black population. But this is the one part of the country where you have a significant black population that is not majority recent immigrant. Okay. So, so black folks kind of first got here in large numbers after the Revolutionary War. So as, as so-called black loyalists, you know, the British had basically said, you know, cross to our side and we'll set you free. And then, of course, eventually they do, they do not win the war and, and people on their side are evacuated. And so the, uh, there was an influx of people coming to Nova Scotia as, as, as so-called black loyalists. Uh, and this is a story that has been uh, explored in a in a, a very a book that made a, a very large impact here in Canada, Lawrence Hill's book, The Book of Negroes. It was also made into a mini series that aired on um, CBC, the main public publicly owned channel here in Canada, and on BET. Yeah, there was also another influx uh, for similar reasons after the War of 1812, and so that means that black folks here in Nova Scotia go back many many generations and so so that's an interestingly different experience and so so i think that part of what i'm trying to say is that there's a kind of yeah diversity to the black experience in canada given the way that for example nova scotia is reminiscent of you know the united states in terms of having a long-standing black population right plus recent immigrants right so there are lots of people here you know who are from uh, Africa and the Caribbean, right? But then it's a, a, a situation similar to the situation in the U.S., where you have the U.S. being increasingly diverse, not just in New York and Miami, since that's been true for a long time, but also in other cities, right? Increasingly large African and Caribbean populations, right? So, so Nova Scotia in that way is similar to the U.S., and plus the fact that the, the folks here are the majority of the folks here are descended from people who came from what is now the U.S., whereas Toronto and Montreal, and I should mention that, like, Toronto is by far the the, the place with the largest. They, Toronto maybe has, like, half of the black people of all of Canada. Okay. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of black people there. But it would be more comparable, you could say, to Europe, right? So London, Paris, you're talking about places with very large black populations, but they are of recent immigrant background, right? So places like Toronto and Montreal would be that kind of experience where, where you have a large black population, most of whom are first, second, third at the most generation. Considering the diversity, what problems mm. in connection with solidarity does that raise? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I mean, it, uh, it raises, first of all, issues of kind of how much do we even know about what's going on in some other part of the country with its very different experience. 
I, I, I think that there's, um, I, I don't want to use the term lack of unity because I, I feel like that's a little too politically laden for what I'm trying to say. But just, um, just as a matter of kind of how much people even know about what it's like elsewhere. I, I'm, I guess I'm thinking especially as a Torontonian. So Toronto, somewhat similar to New York, kind of ends up having a kind of, well, you know, we're the center of everything kind of uh, perspective. Right. And so, and so, uh, you know, some often people from Toronto don't know that much about what's going on in other parts of the country or, or, or what it's like uh, to be there, um, you know, as a generalization, right? You know, there is, yeah, there's a lot to be said about how, how, about the process of building solidarity under those conditions. Although it's also hard for me to really think of it as difficult simply because I, I grew up with with a sense of of black solidarity uh, and and pan Africanism generally kind of inculcated in me, and so that that affects how I how I see the difficulty or not of of of, of black solidarity as a whole. And then speaking of Canada in particular, right? I, I grew up, I, I attended a, a a black heritage program where we learned about African Canadian heroes and. We would be learning, for example, about people who uh, came up on the Underground Railroad to Canada. Uh, so unlike Nova Scotia, right, Ontario, where Toronto is, Ontario is the place where when, when you think of the Underground Railroad and black people getting into Canada that, that way and escaping American slavery that way, that's where they, they mainly ended up. And so so we would be learning about figures Figures including Marianne Shad uh, or Marianne Shad Carey, as she uh, was known after... Um, she got married, who was pioneering journalist, someone who left the U.S. in the 1850s and came, came to, to Ontario and started a newspaper, right? That's, that's why she, she was a pioneering a, a journalist. I don't think, I think she may have been the first, she, she, I think is the first black female editor of a, a newspaper. Anyway, we'd be learning about a figure like her, right? And taking that as our heritage, right? Although, this would have been a program where, you know, the majority of us would have been, like I said, of, of Caribbean descent. So, so for me, it's, it's something that's not hard, right? But it does show that there are these complexities to be dealt with, right? And, and I, I remember one occasion where some kind of open house or performance at this Black Heritage program, a little girl was talking about Black heroes and she was talking about Rosa Parks and saying, you know, I'm glad for Rosa Parks, because now we don't have to sit in the back of the bus. And, and as a child, that made complete sense to me. It's interesting to reflect back as an adult and think about the fact that it's not clear that she would have been sitting in the back of the bus, even if she was in, say, the north of the United States, mm -hmm. much less you're thinking about, like, the question of what does that mean for Canada, right? So how, so how all that fits together is an interesting thing. But I, but I do think that that, a moment like that is a symbol of one other interesting thing about the Black Canadian experience, which is that there is a sense of closeness to the U.S. I mean, people all over the world will, for example, take, say, a Martin Luther King as a hero and so on. And so there's a closeness. There's, there, there's some holding to the African-American experience that's, that, that's common around the world as a whole. But being North American in the way that Canadians are, like, that's the, that's the, the, interesting experience whereby we sometimes will, will talk in ways where you'd forget where it seems like we're forgetting that there is a border to begin with right and also likewise 
there's the interesting fact that we can then also come to the States and people don't know we're Canadian because, you know, we don't sound foreign enough or whatever. So, uh, so it's a, it's, it's an interesting experience. I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about thinking about the thing that connects us, no matter what black person you encounter in the United States, what connects us is a sense of struggle, right? Particularly struggle of being black in America, right? What connects us as far as solidarity is concerned is, is oppression. One of the perceptions about Canada is that it is paradise, right? There is no oppression there. There is no violence there. And so I wonder, is it so paradise in relationship to blacks? Or is that just merely a perception? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's definitely a perception. Uh, you know, to go back to the black loyalists who I mentioned earlier, you know, the folks who came, who were freed by the British and brought to Nova Scotia. So after a few years of not getting the land they were promised, of uh, being treated in various racist ways, exploited for their labor, plus the fact that it was cold on top of all of that, um, a large, large portion took an opportunity that came up and left because they were transported by the British uh, to West Africa. And so for anyone who has ever heard of the country of Sierra Leone, little do they know that the country of Sierra Leone is in a way kind of founded or, or, or it really gets going because of black Nova Scotians, hmm. right? People leaving Canada and uh, helping to build up a colony in West Africa, right? And so that story of, of wanting to leave because of racist treatment here, right? I think starts the story of Canada and, and, and it's racism, right? Uh, because Canada is a settler colony like the U.S., like Australia, New Zealand, right? And these, you know, these European settler colonies were historically founded on the principle of white supremacy, right? And were historically organized along with that principle. In terms of the immigration that has made Canada and especially places like Toronto and Montreal, right, the, the, the diverse places that they are, and also when thinking not just the black folks, also, you know, the West Coast, like Vancouver, that the waves of people from black and other non-white countries, right, especially gets going from the 1960s onwards. And the reason for that is that, you know, before that, uh, the immigration poly policy was basically officially racist, right? Preference, clear preference was given, right, to, to, uh, to white immigrants. You know, all of that ha has to be included in the history. The 1960s also ends up being a, a, an, a, an important time. Here in Nova Scotia, where I am, there's a community known as Africville, where, um, and it was, you know, one of the historical black communities here in Nova Scotia settled since at the very early at the very latest the 1840s but possibly before then it had been treated very badly in terms of city services and it was viewed by um officials as as a slum and so eventually there was a relocation right a kind of breakdown of the community relocating the people um, uh, many of whom were relocated to uh, to public housing right and so losing the kind of uh, community that they that they had and it you know it's it's such a big kind of example of Canadian racism. It was a couple of years ago recognized finally by the city itself, the city of Halifax itself, right? There was a, an official apology and, and the beginnings of some certain forms of reparations. So there's that. I mean, you know, uh, when it comes to matters of police brutality, Toronto in the 80s and 90s 
some of the most important black organizing was in response to to black people being killed by the police and so uh that's another important part of the story right so 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 all of this is to say that you know the idea that there's no racism up here would definitely be a misperception you could get into questions of degree right which uh, you know to me i'm not sure that that such questions are very productive i mean you know i i have definitely talked to people from here and people who have moved here who feel like the states is worse in certain important respects right so i don't want to kind of like totally sideline that that view and yeah i I don't know how i feel in terms of what i would want to say is worse or better right i mean like here is home that is to say canada is is home to me i'm happy to have returned i'm happy to be trying to make my mark here but you know it's and I, you know, I mean, I will admit also that I could have ended up in Florida. I was considering a job at a university in Florida. And I will say that there are things that have happened since I've gotten the job, right? A lot of things, Florida, a lot of stuff happens in Florida. And I will yeah. say that sometimes I'm like, yeah, we made the right decision not to go to Florida. You know, so, 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 so we, you know, we can make those kinds of comparisons, right? But one should always keep in mind, right? That you know, when you're talking about non-white people in majority white society, uh, there is no paradise, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're talking about majority non-white societies, because of the history of colonialism and so on, then it's hard to say that there's a paradise, you know, in that respect either, right? So non-white people have a certain history in the modern world that we are struggling to overcome, whether it be as minorities in majority white countries or whether it be in our countries that were uh, colonized elsewhere. Hmm, Okay. You've written several articles like Prospects for African-Canadian Philosophy and Do We Need African-Canadian Philosophy? So I ask, do we need African-Canadian philosophy and what are the prospects for African-Canadian philosophy? I think we do need African-Canadian philosophy. Um, Some of the points that I try and make in the article of that title are that uh, black people are severely underrepresented in, well, in academia generally, uh, particularly in philosophy uh, in Canada. So what I mean by that, for example, is that in terms of a black person with a primary appointment in philosophy at a Canadian university, I know of one other, other than myself right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's not a lot of us, right? <laughs> At this, uh, you know, I'm very, very happy about some, uh, some recent people having gotten their PhDs. Catherine Clune Taylor ha- has just gotten her PhD from University of Alberta. That's a black Canadian philosopher. Axel Carrera is uh, just got her PhD at uh, Penn State University. She's from. I didn't know she was from Canada. Yeah, she she uh, came to the states from Canada. Okay. And and she definitely gets upset if I don't claim her. Uh, <laughs> the, the Canadian <laughs> definitely got a you know big up Axel and uh, and that's you, you know there's also there's a very talented philosopher who came out I think maybe just before me Elliot. Samuel Paul, he's at Columbia, I believe. And that's that's a bit of a funny story because as black Canadian philosophers, we're already in a tiny, tiny group. And then so when him and I found out that in both of our cases, one of our parents is from Dominica, not the Dominican Republic. Yes, yes. And the other parent is from Guyana. Then it just became weird, right? So we call <laughs> ourselves like, you know, the philosophy twins of some sort, right? Because... <laughs> 
doesn't make sense that, you know, that statistically you would find <laughs> these two young black philosophers came out around the same time, one parent from, you know, that country and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm saying that there's very few of us. And so there is a need, I'd say, for academia in general and then philosophy in particular to reflect right, the diversity of Canada and, and the black population in particular. But I also think that philosophy that focuses on the African-Canadian experience is important and is needed. Lewis Gordon, in his book, An Introduction to Africana Philosophy, makes a point when he's about to talk about African-American philosophy to say that, that many Africana philosophers have gotten their training in Canada, but uh, I don't remember the exact wording, something like, you know, no movements in Africana philosophy, you know, has taken root uh, up here, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he is talking about various really important figures. Charles Mills got his PhD at University of Toronto. Bernie Boxall studied in Canada. I believe he was, he studied at, at the University of, of New Brunswick. And Kirun Zegu, she studied, I think she got her PhD at, uh, University of Ottawa. Olufemi Taiwo, the, uh, the Nigerian uh, philosopher, not the grad student, uh, who is of the same name. So there are now two Olufemi Taiwos, uh, but Olufemi Taiwo, the elder, also a U of T PhD, um, University of Toronto. In any case, those are just a few examples. The people just named are all institutions in the United States, right? And so I think that there is a need for Canadians to fill a certain gap, right? To bring the distinctive Canadian experience to the table in terms of the larger conversation that is Africana philosophy, right? So, so just as those who are coming from Africa bring a particular experience, uh, those who are coming from Latin America bring a particular experience. I think that Canada, so we've been talking about is kind of a, an interestingly different place mm -hmm. and so i think that eventually having more people from here talking about blackness here will greatly enrich african philosophy more generally for more access to the unmute podcast subscribe on itunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co there you can get more information about our guests participate in giveaways as well as learn more about people books and concepts mentioned in today's episode until next time remember that your silence will not protect you listen think speak the world will be different as a result